uh, my, my heart and my feelings go out to you who do not have that advantage. It does make it much more difficult to truly grow uh, rather than just walk in place or perhaps even slip down a little. And that was one of the main reasons Herbert Armstrong realized he needed local churches around the country because even in Oregon, he would go out and evangelize and raise up a congregation through a, an evangelistic campaign. And then he would go back to Portland or Eugene, Salem, and uh, those churches would fall apart because there was no pastor, no shepherd there to lead them and guide them and help them. And uh, he began to realize that it had to be. And I know from the years we spent out in West Texas being the, basically the only ones around in the area, uh, one other family 130 miles away and none others that we knew of. Uh, well, some more family came in later and another family or two as time went on. But <clears throat> we were out there essentially alone and it was very, very difficult. Uh, you don't get the same stimulation you do. So hang in there on the telephone and <laughs> realize that you have an additional burden, additional difficulty in trying to grow and overcome when you don't have the help of those around you. I guess that was an announcement. Uh, it wasn't part of the sermon, but... Let's go back to uh, Genesis today. I want to pick up a comment. You might remember right at the end of the last sermon I gave in this chapter on Dinah, who was raped, and then Simeon and Levi uh, made the deal with the people of the city and circumcised them and three days later when they were at their very sorest and stiffest went in and killed them all. And I said at the time God didn't make an editorial comment here and as I left and went to sit down I, it came to mind that he really does make an editorial comment so I wanted to go back and pick that up. You might hold your finger there in Genesis 34 and go back to chapter 49 uh, and down in verse 5. Here he's talking, beginning the chapter, Jacob called his sons together and said he wanted to tell them that which would befall the generations that followed them in the last days. So this was a prophecy Jacob was making for what kind of people his sons would be in this day and age, the latter days last days. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not you into their secret, to their assembly, my honor, be not you united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Simeon and Levi were instruments of cruelty and that kind of wrath and that kind of cruelty God despised. But it would be in those people, the genetic makeup, down through the ages. And therefore God did not give them a land of their own. He scattered them through Israel so that they could not be together uh, knowing the proclivity that they would have, that they would create all kinds of havoc for others. So rather than being together, they were scattered. 
So God does make a comment on this. This was an unusual and cruel treatment. Now, God had told Israel when they went into the land later on, uh, this, this was before that, but later when they would go in with Joshua, God told them to destroy the peoples of the land, lest they turn and bite them and lead them into paganism and so on. But that would have been in warfare where it was, let's say, a fair fight. God would help them because he had promised to. But contrast that with this act of absolute cruelty on helpless men. And that kind of advantage God did not appreciate whatsoever uh, and made sure that it would not happen again. <laughs> Why did God make the Levites, the priests, to do all the sacrifices. They lived in blood. And maybe there's a throwback there in God's thinking along those lines. You are going to take advantage and kill and shed blood at a whim like that. I'll just let you live in blood. I don't know that that was his thinking, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if that were the case. And perhaps God re recorded that story here partly to make this clear. God doesn't waste space. We need to be very careful about cruelty and how we treat people, how we treat animals. And if we do need to kill animals, we need to kill them very quickly and decisively. Uh, some people, boys, will get out sometimes and torture animals until they finally kill them. It can be very, very cruel, boys can. But God does not like things done in that manner and in that fashion. Does that mean we shouldn't kill animals? No. Sometimes they need to be killed for food. Sometimes they're crop predators, and they need to be thinned out. I notice uh, jackrabbits coming into newly planted fields across from me just, uh, well, it was actually it was this morning. I think it was last night. It was this morning. They, uh, they see seed begin to germinate, and those are nice and tender, and here come the jackrabbits. So you can either make pets of them or you can save your garden. I don't know which you'll do, but uh, that's your choice. Anyway, <clears throat> let's go to chapter 35 with that. God said to Jacob, rise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Oh, I wanted to make one more comment. It'll probably come up again, but I'll make it now while I'm thinking of it. That some of these sons of Jacob did some things that were not good. We'll read some things Judah did here a little later if we get there that far today. Uh, they made some mistakes. They had lots of problems in their lives. And they are not necessarily the ones that God tells us to look back to. He said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He uses Joseph as a good example. Judah sometimes is a good example. But remember that when Christ's kingdom comes, he is going to make the twelve apostles 
the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. He is not going to make the original men the head of their own tribes. It came from them. They were the fathers of those tribes, Reuben, Judah, and so on. But the apostles are going to be put there in their place. Uh, a New Testament administration, if you will. I suppose some of these men, if they're not in the first resurrection, will probably come up in the second and have opportunity of salvation at that time. But they were by no means converted men, and I don't think that someone being led by the Spirit of God would have done what Simeon and Levi did and some of the things that these others did. But that doesn't mean that even men of God don't make mistakes. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all made mistakes. Joseph made mistakes. David made mistakes. Uh, everyone has. I was reading Ecclesiastes yesterday, and uh, Solomon was commenting about how no one ever has been completely, totally faithful to God, other than Christ himself. But he had watched a lot of people. And he said, I've only found one faithful man out of a thousand, and no faithful women. It makes me wonder if the one faithful man that he was describing <laughs> was himself. <laughs> so, and I don't see that Solomon was all that faithful to God all the time either. But they, he felt probably he was the only one he could trust out of a thousand men and no women. Well, he had a thousand women, so uh, I imagine there were all kinds of problems and frustrations and altercations and jealousies and uh, things going on in his household that uh, made him want to pull his hair out from both the men and the women. So he had a lot of wisdom from a worldly standpoint he used in the book of Ecclesiastes. Anyway, let's go on to chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, or house of God, and dwell there. I want you to go live now at the house of God. And make there an altar to God that appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Then Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Now, Jacob had been apparently living with a certain amount of paganism within his household. You know, things just sort of happen. You have people around you who have pagan beliefs, and it's so easy to take on a certain amount of the paganism. Or let's not, let's not use the word paganism here, let's use the culture. It's so easy to take on the culture that is around you. The language, the expressions, the mode of thinking, and to take on their gods, whether they be little grinning idols or whether they be some of the gods that we have in our world today that people put ahead of the true God. But he had been instructed by God to go to the house of God, to Bethel. Remember in chapter 28, verse 18, where he had had the dream, was at that place where they had, had the stairway to heaven and the angels coming and going. And he realized, even said, that this was the gate to heaven. So where that Jerusalem, that Bethel was, is very interesting because the keys to the kingdom of heaven kept going back to and from that place throughout history. 
And God said it would be desolate for many, many generations, or for many generations, and that then it would be rebuilt. But he did have, in his thinking, the knowledge, the understanding, that when you go to the house of God, you need to go there and not take your culture, your thinking, the world with you. I want to flip over to Isaiah 52. We've read this many times over the last years, but I think it's still important to tie this in because these are the latter days now, and we are told to go back and think on the things that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did and turn to our fathers. And here is inter, in, uh, instruction to this end-time church. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. We need to be strong here at the end. And that's one of the things that he tells us in Haggai and Zephaniah and other places and told Joshua when, it, when he went into uh, the courage, I mean, into the, uh, the promised land. He told Joshua to be of good courage and to be strong and to meditate on the words of the books of Moses daily so that he might have good success. So here again, he's telling Zion, the church, to be strong and put on your beautiful garments. And we know the beautiful garments are the garments of righteousness. O Jerusalem, the holy city. Jerusalem is a holy city, a holy place. And we dare not take our worldly thinking, our evil thinking, there. I think I told you the story, and maybe I'll tell it again here. But last summer when we were digging at the site that I believe at this point was the original Jerusalem, it has been desolate for many generations. The one in the Middle East never has been, but this one has, and it's the home of lizards or dragons and jackals or coyotes. We've seen both there. Be that as it may, there is a spring at the base of the mountain, which I think pictures the waters coming from Mother Israel. And as we were coming off the mountain one day, a lightning storm moved in, and a bolt of lightning hit right at the top, right at the base of that spring, and started burning the brush right there. And as I thought about that, it sent a chill up and down my spine. But God was saying, Be you holy. This is the holy city. Do not bring the attitudes of this world to my house. I took it as a very severe and strong warning. And later on I mentioned it to the fellow who put us up to the idea of digging there in the first place. And he says, boy, because he'd heard the story. And I told him what I got to thinking about it later. He says, you're right. We're going to come here. We must be holy. That bolt of lightning was so loud that even in the pickup you could hardly stand it. And it set a fire right there. The burning bush, if you will. 
That's scary. It's scary to know that God is going to defend and take care of that which is his, and especially that which is to him very holy. And we need to think about that as we work on the projects that we are working on. God does not want an unholy people. He wants us clean if we come to the house of God. And we are a part of the church of God, which is also the house of God. So he tells us here to put on our beautiful, our righteous garments. For henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. God is going to make a separation and a division between his holy people and those of this world who are unclean in their thinking. Go on down to verse... 11, well, verse 10, he says he's going to make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of his people. He says in, I think it's Jeremiah, that the deliverance he gives here at the end is going to make the Red Sea look like play toy by comparison. It'll make you forget it. It's going to be so powerful. Well, he's going to make his arm, his hand, his might known. So then he gives us instruction. Depart you, depart you. Go you out from there, that is, of Babylon. Touch no unclean thing. Don't touch it. Go you out of the midst of her. Get out of the middle of this Babylonian culture and society we're in. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. We hold God's holy word, and we will probably hold the vessels of the original temple in our hands. And God will not allow that unless we are clean. Now, does this make Jacob's instruction back here all the more understandable. He knew he was going to the house of God. And he said, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Put on the holy garments. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. We have been given an opportunity that is priceless an opportunity that is being given to a very, very, very few here at the end. And with that comes heavy responsibility to control our minds, to control our motives, our actions, and to be sure that what we are thinking and doing conforms to the Word of God, that He would be pleased to have us working in his holy city. You know, when the New Jerusalem comes down, he says, no more ever again will the unclean, the filthy, the liar, the thief, the adulterer go into the holy city. It just will not happen. But when he says be clean, if you're going to be a light to this world from God, he expects us to live up to it. And as difficult as it is in this world today, 
to live a godly way when everyone else is going the ungodly way. That's what God calls us to do. Now, if we are unwilling to do that, if we're not willing to make that commitment, that effort, and that sacrifice for him, we will be cut off. Believe that. Well, Jacob realized that importance. and We need to look to Jacob in this instance. Everything Jacob did may not have been right. And from that we can take encouragement and hope that where we have made errors and sins, God can use us in spite of ourselves anyway. But at the same time, we need to look to these people for the good that they did and follow the good example. Find hope in the bad. Find instruction in the good. So then he said, And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar to God. Let me back up and make one more comment here. Jacob was able to say to his whole household, his wives, his children, his servants, this is the way we need to live if we're going to God's house. Now that isn't necessarily the way we've been taught in this nation, is it? In this nation, we've been taught that we are sovereign, that we are autonomous, that we are individuals, and we can do anything we want in America today. Haven't we? Nobody's going to tell me what to do is a very, very common phrase used in our culture. I am a free man or woman. I can do whatever I please. If that's your thinking, go for it. But understand that in so doing, you will cut yourself off from God and you will more than likely die in the trying days that are coming upon us very quickly now. That's why God says that we need to turn our hearts to our Father in heaven, to our fathers of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and to our physical fathers here on this earth who are willing to obey God. Our hearts need to be turned in all those ways. And we need to understand that our very culture has bred rebellion within us. It has bred the desire to do our own thing when we want, how we want. So all of us, as we grew up, thought, boy, just wait till I'm 18. I will do my thing. They may have me under their thumb now, but just wait till I have my chance to do what I want to do. And sometimes we mature before we actually do that and realize that what we wanted to do probably wasn't the best thing to do anyway, but we make up our own mind. And we should make up our own minds. But let's be instructed that the American way of rebellion and doing it our way is not always the best way. And sometimes we need to submit. We need to understand. I wish... I had always in my life followed, well, not always, but most of the time, I could have followed 
the example of my own physical father, and done really, really well. Because I never heard the man once lie in his life. I never heard, saw, the man never slept with another woman but his wife. The man never cheated anybody in business that I ever could see. He always bent way over backward to make sure the other guy won too. Even when he was cheated by his own brother, he didn't go back and try to extract the pound of flesh from him. I could go on and on. He's a very fine, upstanding person. And if I had followed all those examples all my life, I probably would have not made nearly as many mistakes as I have made. He was in the church, but I was me. You know, and I've made a lot of mistakes in my life that my dad never made. All kinds of them. I didn't listen to my father enough. That's regrettable. So, we need to understand. Most of us here probably had fathers in the church. It's been going on long enough now. We've got a lot of second, some even third generation Christians, and maybe... I don't know, there's possibility even some fourth generation at this point. So, oh yeah, I know there is. In our own family, we had five generations born in the church. Now, one was nearly 90 and one was just born, but <laughs> just born of a 14-year-old girl for that matter. But five got squeezed in there. I, would, I didn't say everybody was righteous. I just said they were in a church. But these people were the children of Israel at this point. Jacob's name is changed here in this chapter to Israel. Now why? Because God saw where this man's heart was. We'll read on and see that. So he said, let us rise, this family... Let us obey God. Let us get rid of our idols, strange things, and be clean, and even wear clean clothes, symbolic of righteousness today. But then he wanted them even to have clean clothing on, physical clothing. And let us arise and go up to the house of God, Bethel, and I will make there an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. He's using this as an opportunity to teach his wives and his children to rehearse what God had done in his life. We need to do that with our children and tell them the experiences we had early in the church, after we were converted, the answers to prayer, things that happened. So often parents have difficulty understanding the difference between teaching and lecturing, and children tend to look at it more, even if it is done in a right teaching method as lecturing, uh, because they don't necessarily want to be told. But we need to find ways to let them know what our relationship with God has been and how he's answered our prayers, what he's done for us. So it's not just a matter of you should ought to do this and you should ought to do that, but here's what I did, and here's how God blessed me for having done so. So that it's a positive uplift. Here's what God has done because I did this. 
And that's why we're where we are today, and that's what God has done because of what we did. And then show his mercy in using us sometimes in spite of what we did. But that's what he was doing, saying, we're going up to the house of God. Get rid of your idols, put on your clean clothes. I want to tell you what God did for me when I was there. I was fleeing for my brother who wanted to kill me. And God took care of me. He answered me in the day of distress and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave to Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand. They obeyed. They didn't rebel. Hey, wait a minute. That's my God. Those are my earrings. And all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Now, does that mean that we need to turn in all our earrings and not wear earrings? No. I think, uh, isn't it Ezekiel 16? Does it mention earrings where God put all kinds of ornaments on his bride-to-be? They cleaned her up. Let's see here. I know it mentioned a jewel in your forehead and earrings in your ears, verse 12, and a beautiful crown upon your head. You were decked with gold and silver, fine linen and silk, embroidered work, and so on. So God decorated his wife. He put a jewel in her forehead, or in her nose perhaps that was, and gave her earrings. But there's a difference in earrings, and there's a difference in nose jewels. These were probably in pagan-shaped varieties. They may have been the shapes of their gods. They may have been hearts. They may have been, which were uh, symbolic and pagan sexual uh, practices of, of female parts. That's where the valentine came from. They were things that had to do with paganism. I've seen earrings on modern women that even certain times of the year they'll wear Christmas trees in their ears. Uh, whatever they were, it doesn't specify. They obviously were in obeisance and uh, to pagan gods. So that was the kind of earrings that would have had to have gone. Even some of the jewelry <laughs> that is being worn today indicate an attitude of rebellion. I don't recommend that our girls and boys wear nose rings in the side of their nose. Uh, they may have had some nose jewels, and God may have put a nose jewel on Israel, at least in uh, metaphor. But the reason they're doing it today is rebellion against their parenthood and the culture that we have had. Now, our culture is wrong. And to some degree, they recognize wrongness in it. It's not just the kids who are out smoking and drugging and drinking too much and fornicating and all those things that are wrong, and the kids can see that. They see lying and cheating in business. They see adults doing the same things they want to do. And they're rebelling against the evil that they see to some degree, and at the same time, it gives them a justification for doing what they wish to do, 
because they see the hypocrisy in the older generation. So it's not always out-and-out out rebellion. It's a protest in a way to get your own way in another way. But it stems from a rebellious nature and attitude that is there. So it's not that the guy's wearing the earrings and the nose rings and wherever else you want to put them that are all wrong. It's the whole society, the whole culture. And God tells us, young and old, all of you come out of it. Whether you're 85 or 12, come out of it. All of us. So it's not that jewelry is wrong. It's the way it is used that is wrong. If it is in an attitude of rebellion, and rebellion is not the way of God, it's the way of Satan. So, and the shapes and the types that we use can be wrong too because they smack of paganism and sexual immorality. That's why we don't wear ties now because of their origin. And some doesn't make earrings wrong, but some of the shapes they put to them are wrong. I told somebody, well, if you want to wear a heart around your neck, we'll just smile and go on about our business. But I was saying that tongue-in-cheek and kidding a little bit. Why would you want to wear Simiramis' private parts around your neck to advertise? Why would a man want to wear a tie symbolizing that which is lower down around his neck to brag about what he has? It just isn't necessary. And not only that, it stems from paganism. And it's a worship of the wrong thing. Just as the Christmas tree is. Same thing. Christmas tree sticking up and the tie's hanging down, but it's the same deal. And God condemns the Christmas tree very vociferously in Jeremiah 10. So we need to think about these things. And anything that's associated with paganism and wrongness and the breaking of God's laws, we need to get rid of. So they gave to Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. They probably were of gold and of silver and, and fine, expensive things, but they were shaped wrong. Maybe he was in a hurry because God said, get up and go, so he didn't melt them all down, have a smelting fire there and melt them uh, as they did after the golden calf was made. Well, no, they melted them down to make the golden calf. But here he buried them. Maybe he had, had in mind to come back and melt them down later when he had more time, I don't know. And they journeyed. <clears throat> and the terror of God was upon the cities that were around about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. Now, Jacob did not have a huge army. He had his family. But the peoples around were afraid of Jacob. Maybe they had seen and heard some of the things that God had done with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore they feared. God put the fear of his people in them. And God is going to put the fear of his own people in this world at the end time too. They're going to fear us. We won't go into that more at this time. So Jacob came to Lutz, which is in the land of Canaan, 
that is, Bethel, and he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, or uh, the God of Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Alanabasheth, I guess, something like that. Alanabasheth. And God appeared to Jacob again when he came out of Padan Aram and blessed him. So it pays off to obey God and to put the false idols and gods away. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of you, and kings shall come out of your loins. And the land which I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, to you I will give it, and to your seed after you will I give the land. So, wherever his seed are living today is the land God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We believe that we are the seed of one of the sons of Jacob, that would be Joseph. And those were twins, Ephraim and Man- or two, two sons of Joseph were Ephraim and Manasseh. And I believe that we are Ephraim today. So the land given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Ephraim is where we live. That makes it the promised land. Cleah. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So God left him there. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. So set up a monument for where he had met God, where God met him. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. So he'd gone back to the same place, the house of God. Maybe we've sat on one of those pillar stones. I don't know, but I think it's a very strong possibility. They have ancient Hebrew markings on them and petroglyphs, which indicate that may be the case right here in the Promised Land. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Fear not, you shall have this son also. Now she had called the the name of the first one, Joseph, add me another one, or add one, or add another, or I die, I've read in one place. And God did add another, and she died. Came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, but she called his name Benoni, or the son of my sorrow. It's a nice name to saddle your son with. But his father called him Benjamin, the son of the right hand. I have read that all the apostles of Christ's time were Benjamites. Well, Paul, Paul even was a Benjamite later on, but the original ones were Benjamites. I've not checked that out to be absolutely sure, but I think that that is the case. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. 
And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day when this was written. Uh, and Ezra edited what Moses had written, and I'm sure that he, when he edited this, he made that comment. There are some editorial comments in here that obviously Moses didn't make. He was dead uh, when, when some, of these, some of these were written. He hadn't been born at this point, but later on when Ezra uh, edited these things, he was looking at the time when he was living and saying, these things all happened and it's still that way to this day. And you'll see some things worded like that after Moses' death as well to show that that is the case. Now, Ephrath is very interesting. It is the same root word for Ephraim. The word Ephrath means fruitful. And Ephraim means double fruit. So the root word is fruitful, and the word that sprang, sprang from it, Ephraim, means double fruit. Is it ironic that we find in Jeremiah 31, God changed the order of the birth in his reckoning. Instead of Reuben being the firstborn, he named Ephraim the firstborn, or double fruit. And to the son, who was the firstborn son, went double the inheritance. So when we look for Ephraim today, we need to find a place that is called double fruit. I just read before the service started that of the grains that are traded on the international market that go across borders, the United States produces 60% of the corn that is traded worldwide. 25% uh, of the wheat, what was it, 33% of the soybeans, and 10% of the rice. We don't think of ourselves as a big rice-growing country, but uh, Arkansas produces a lot of rice, and there's some produced down in southeast Texas and other places, Louisiana as well. So the breadbasket of the world really is the American Midwest. And they're saying that we may have serious food shortages now because it looks like the crops being planted this year in America are going to be uh, compromised a great deal because of flooding and drought and difficulties that are coming on. They're having to plant late. They're having to plant some that's been planted has been washed out and on and on it goes. Tornadoes have torn up a lot. Uh, let's go to Micah 5 here. Keep your finger. We'll be right back. But there's a couple of references I want to look at in relationship to the wording here. Uh, Micah 5 now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. Uh, they say that this is speaking of Judah here in the commentaries. He has laid siege against us, and we are the spiritual Jews. And this is talking about the church departing from uh, the midst of Babylon at this age. This is the chapter where it tells us to go, uh, well, chapter 4, where it says go even to Babylon, but get out of the city and go out and dwell in the field. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. And I think that this is speaking of Judah because it comes down to speaking of Christ here specifically, and he was of the tribe of Judah. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth to me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. 
So Christ, it turned out, was born in Bethlehem, which is right next to Jerusalem here in the story. And even in the false Jerusalem of the Middle East, Bethlehem is only, I think, six miles from the old city. I drove across there, and it wasn't very far. Uh, and it was right there at the site in this particular case. Let's go to Psalm 132 as well. well. Jacob was at the place when this was occurring in the promised land that had been promised to him and been promised to Abraham, Isaac, before him. Standing in that place, and Bethlehem was right there. Psalm 132, Eternal remember David in all his afflictions, how he swore to the Eternal and vowed to the mighty God of Jacob, he uses not Abraham or Isaac here. He uses Jacob in this psalm. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up to my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the eternal and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Oh, God had promised that place, the house of God, Bethel, to Jacob. And he gave Jacob the dream in the night of the ladder going to heaven and said, this is the stairway to heaven and this is the gate to heaven. It says a couple of verses before that in Genesis 28. The gate to heaven. And David is saying, I will not give rest to my eyes until I find the place where God wants to dwell. Read on. Lo, we heard of it at Ephrata, we found it in the fields of the wood. We will go into his tabernacles, we will worship at his footstool. Oh, God wants to make Jerusalem and Zion his dwelling place. David found that. Now, there must have been some confusion and frustration in his mind when he was preparing to build the temple of God, hadn't built yet. Remember, and David was not allowed to build it because he had shed so much blood, but his son Solomon was to build it. But he wanted to be sure he had the right place to build the temple of God. He amassed the material to do it with, even knowing that he would not be allowed to do it. But he found the right place. And he said it was at Ephrata, the fields of the wood, if you go on down a little bit, verse 13, For the Eternal has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision, I will satisfy her poor with bread. Verse 17, There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for my anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. Is it any stretch of the imagination to think that God would do his work in the end time at the very same place that it was done in history? It only makes sense. God works in patterns. So the original place is where Jacob was. David recognized that, and he talked about the mighty God of Jacob who led him to that particular spot and called it Ephrath, or Bethlehem, where Christ himself would be born. 
and where Ephraim would be in the end. Ephrath, then the name Ephraim, meaning not only fruit, but double fruit. Firstborn son. The case gets stronger and stronger. But where Jacob stood is in the land of Ephraim. And we are the land of Ephraim today. So Bethel and Jerusalem and Zion were his original dwelling, where the Garden of Eden would have been, and where Christ is coming back to, and where his end-time work will be headquartered. Now, if you don't believe that's anywhere near here, stick around a while and we'll see. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. We'll find out. But I wouldn't rule it out. Beginning to see more and more evidence in the Bible. You see, that is the key. I was mentioning on Pentecost about some dreams and various things. But what did we do? We went into the Bible to see if the Bible bore out those things, to see if it made sense, to see if it fit that Utah was the mirror image of the false Middle East Holy Land. And I think that we've been able to show that that is the case. So it should come as no surprise that Jerusalem would have been here as well. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard it. Now it does say of Reuben in chapter 49 of Genesis that he was unstable as water. To go into his father's, well, she had become his concubine and I guess never was raised to the status of wife, but he had children by her, and then Reuben went in and violated her. And Israel heard it. doesn't say that he did anything or what he did or what happened. It just makes a passing comment. But then you see later when they said the sons of Reuben are going to be unstable, understand why. Maybe those things are put in here as clues so that when the prophecy was made by Jacob in Genesis 49, we'd better grasp why the sons of Reuben today would be an unstable people. And they are sexually unstable in the country of France as well. That's one of the things that led us to think that Reuben is France. So, the sons of Jacob were twelve. family was complete with the birth of Benjamin. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. So he was the firstborn, but God changed it in Jeremiah 31 and made Ephraim the firstborn. Gave him the double portion. And Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, were Joseph and Benjamin. Well, Rachel had her problems and was jealous of her sister and so on, but... Uh, Two of the key tribes that God used in the end were the sons of Rachel. Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, and then Benjamin, whom the apostles came from. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob, which were born to him in Padan Aram. Uh, notice that Judah is a son of Leah, a wife, not a handmaid. 
It was through the line of Judah that Christ would be born. So he was legitimate at this point all the way. And Jacob came to Isaac, his father, to Mamre, verse 27, to the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac were 104 score years. He gave up the spirit and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And Esau and Jacob buried him. So he was 180 years old when he died. Abraham was 175. Lived a long old life. Now, I'm going to basically skip through chapter 36. We're not here necessarily to study Edom. Uh, it is in here for some important reasons, because Jacob and Esau were brothers, and there was deep contention between them as human beings when they walked the earth. And God said in the book of Obadiah and other places, uh, Isaiah, that uh, Edom would be an enemy of Jacob throughout history, and that Esau would actually, or Edom would actually, get the upper hand right here at the end. And we went back a few weeks ago and saw that Esau and the descendants of Esau would be in the fat places of the earth, the moneyed places, and they are part of the bankster organization today. Uh, gangster and bankster uh, are used <laughs> on the Internet when talking of the Federal Reserve and, and the banking community that is against us. And a lot of those people are Edomites. They say they are Jews, and they are not. They are Edomites, and they will get the upper hand. The financial elite are sitting in the catbird seat today, and they are in the process of taking whatever wealth we have away from us. And they're doing it in an organized fashion. It is being crashed and destroyed on purpose so that the elites may have it all, and the rest will be peasants in their new world order. I was just reading in Daniel yesterday about how uh, there will be a total takeover of the whole world, reading about the beast there in, in Daniel 7. It says we'll have sway and conquer the whole earth. Now, people say there's no conspiracy and there's no, no new world order in the, in the wings. Well, that's not what God says in Daniel 7 or in Isaiah 8 either, for that matter, and other places. Anyway, chapter 36 deals with the generations of Esau, who is Edom, and they do have uh, a lot of bearing on what is about to happen in the world today, so it is an important understanding for us to have. But he took of the wives of Canaan, mentioned several of them here. I had said earlier, remember the story, that uh, he had taken a wife uh, of the Canaanites on purpose, just to show rebellion against his parents. And uh, it was a move away from God, as most of Esau's moves were. And he was to later rue the day that he rebelled against God and against his parents. But he couldn't find it in himself to repent, even though he cried bitterly with many tears, as uh, Hebrews 12 shows. There are a couple of things I might point out here. He left Canaan, where God had told Jacob to go, to get away from the face of his brother Jacob. Now, he had uh, feigned friendship when he met Jacob and accepted the gifts of Jacob and so on, finally. But he still didn't want to be around him. He just did not enjoy being anywhere near Jacob was. It was too painful. The memories, the cheating, the lying that had taken place. Uh, 
It says, For their riches were more than that they might dwell together, verse 7, in the land wherein they were strangers could not bear them because of their cattle. So they were both wealthy. And uh, there wasn't room in that land. Besides that, there was the contention that had always been there. But he makes several statements in here that Esau is Edom, verse 8, and other places. Uh, notice down in verse 15, these were the dukes of the sons of Esau. They took on the term, or called themselves dukes. Uh, we have in the royalty of Europe today that class of royalty called dukes. It's a title. And apparently it began here with the sons of Esau. They began calling themselves dukes. Um, Esau and Jacob have been fighting ever since. It makes me wonder where the term we have, they were duking it out, comes from. We still use that today when you're talking about two people fighting. They, they duked it out. Well, Esau and Jacob <laughs> were some of the original protagonists who fought between themselves. The name's a whole bunch of the dukes. There are a couple of names in here. Uh, verse 17, it talks about the duke Shammah. I wonder if that's where they got the term shaman that is somewhat common among the Native American tribes here today. And if some of the sons of Esau are not uh, in the western United States and related through the American Indians. Notice down in verse 28, the children of Dishan are these, Utes and Aran. Here we find Utes or Uz, but would be pronounced Utes, and we have the Utes here in Utah and other parts of the Southwest. Does it come back to here? I suspect that it does. Notice uh, verse 39. In the middle of the verse it says, The name of his city was Payu. Payute? Payute? Makes you wonder if we don't have both the Utes and the Paiutes going all the way back to Esau and Edom. Notice verse 41. Duke Pinon, or Pinon. Where do we get the Pinon tree that we have growing all around us here? I don't know that I can prove all these things. Just some interesting notes as we go through the chapter that the names are very similar to what we're seeing here in the Southwest. And we have seen so very, very much indication that this southwestern part of Ephraim is very important. Well, I think we have time then to get at least a little bit into the story of, of Joseph. Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan, given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilva and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought to his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. He was also the son of Rachel. That probably had some play in it. Uh, first son that Rachel had. And he and Rachel had looked forward to having a son through Rachel all those years. And she went through much frustration. So there are probably a lot of reasons that he favored 
uh, Joseph, even as he had favored her mother over the other women. He was a son of his old age. In other words, the one he had waited all those years for. He'd had some by Leah. He'd had them by the concubines, but not through Rachel. So, uh, son of his old age, he had waited and waited and waited. And finally, Joseph was born. So he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him. Sometimes it doesn't pay to be loved too much, I guess. Uh, because it creates jealousy in others. Anytime there's favoritism, it comes to be known. And it comes to be a pain, an emotional pain. And sometimes it can lead to all kinds of problems. So they got jealous. They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. They were always on him. You're the favorite, you're the favorite or however they termed it, but they were always writing him about it. And there was a lot of hatred toward him. So he lived a life, because he was loved, he lived the life of being hated. Now you and I, because we are loved of God, are going to be hated of this world. They're going to be bitter and jealous. And Christ even said there in his last dissertation to his father in the prayer and to his disciples, that if they're my friends, they'll be your friends. If they hate me, they'll hate you. And he said, they will hate me, and they will hate you, but fear not, I have overcome the world. Now, he is not asking us to do anything that he has not himself done ahead of time. He tells us to overcome the world. He says to all the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, if you will overcome, you will sit with me in my kingdom. So he's only asking us to do what he did. And let's remember that he was tempted in all points like as we are. There is no temptation come upon any one of us that did not come upon him. He always resisted, and we have not. Therefore, we need his sacrifice and his blood shed that we might be forgiven of those things which we have done. Anyway, verse 5, Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren and they hated him yet the more. They already hated him. Then he had this dream, and he made the mistake of telling them about it. And woo. He said to them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheep arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and bowed down to my sheep. And his brethren said to him, Shall you, you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us he was young he was one of the youngest and you're going to rule over your older brothers give us a break here get real and they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words and he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren <laughs> he didn't learn the first time I guess 
And you know, he may also have had an attitude himself. Yes, he was the favored one. Teacher's pet, father's pet. And he may have had it in him, being a human being, a young man at that, at age 17, where he did lord it over his brothers. And maybe part of their jealousy and their hate was because of his attitude. I don't know that, but he was still very young, and he was favored of his father, and then he started having these dreams about how they'd bow down to him. Now, did he get the big head here? He may have. For some reason, he kept telling his brothers, he knew he'd be hated for it, but this was kind of like sticking his finger in their eye, it sounds like to me. So he dreamed another one and said, Behold, I've dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. And he told it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to you to the earth? You think we're going to bow down on our knees before you? Now, who was this father? His father was Jacob, the, father, the, the man that God had made all these promises to. So Jacob was a man of note in his own right. <coughs> and he said, God will make me the father of many nations. He's called me Israel. And you're going to have Israel bow down before you? So dad got his uh, nerves in an uproar. I thought of several expressions. None of them fit quite well enough for a sermon. But uh, he got upset anyway. <clears throat> so his dad rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall we bow down to you? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. His brothers didn't think anything more about it other than this little pipsqueak and his vanity and his pride thinks he's going to rule over us, we'll show him, was their attitude. But his dad thought about it. He just kind of filed it away and thought about it. He observed it. Now, he had had enough dealings with God himself that he might have been thinking, you know, uh, maybe my favorite son here is also a favorite of God. Don't know exactly what he was thinking, but we'll see how the story unfolds and begin to see. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Do not your brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. He was of a ready mind. It tells us in the New Testament we need to be of a ready mind, willing to serve, willing to give, willing to do what is asked of us. We know we're slaves of Christ, but we are bought and paid for, purchased with his blood, and therefore we belong to him. And anything he asks of us, we need to do. It may be menial. It may not be important. It might not be what we were trained to do. It may not seem like something that God would have us do. Right? But sometimes we need to realize that as slaves we have no choice and we need to do what we are directed to do. I know in high school 
I asked for a job there at Imperial and the church in Big Sandy, so they decided they would give me a job. You can clean up the mess after everybody leaves from school, and then you can go in and clean their toilets for them. That was my job. That was what I was directed to do. And at Ambassador College, they had this attitude that they wanted all the freshmen to do very menial work so that we might learn that we are not too good to do anything. So most of the freshmen guys, well, the, the lucky ones got to be on the gardening crew. And the unlucky ones got to clean the toilets and the showers and change the beds for the others. I think God was beginning to work with me even at that age, so I cleaned the toilets and changed the beds and scrubbed the showers because I probably needed to. And, well, I don't have to tell that. I guess I will. Anyway, uh, some of the guys started getting promoted, so they go into the mail reading room or work in the press or something else. Well, I got to the blessing of getting to clean toilets my freshman year and my second sophomore year, and I was still on the janitor crew at the beginning of my junior year. And they finally had mercy and put me in mail reading and, and uh, in the printing press uh, before that, I guess. But uh, nearly everybody had graduated from toilet cleaning but me. And I think that I probably needed my head in the bowl for another year. Does anyone doubt that? <clears throat> you probably agree, because it was probably true. Anyway, Joseph was the child that stayed at home with Daddy, and uh, the others were out herding the flocks. So he got special favor there. He got a coat of many colors, and he got to stay around the house and be near his father while the others were way far away. Anyway, he did have a willing attitude, though. He was ready-minded, said, here I am, Dad, whatever you want me to do. Now, maybe there were some reasons he was favored other than just who his mother was. It may have been partly his attitude that was good. He was ready to help. And really, if you look at our nation today, despite all of our sins and our departing from God, we've been willing, haven't we? I mean, we've been warlike and we've bombed whoever we wanted to bomb, but we also have given more aid, more help, than anyone else on earth to people who needed help. So we are of a ready mind, as a son of Joseph, to help wherever help is needed. So that characteristic has been passed on down through Ephraim, and to some degree in Manasseh, uh, Britain, but uh, especially here in Ephraim. So do these traits, good and bad, come down? Yes, they do. And he said to him, Go, I pray you, see whether it be well with your brethren and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale, and a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. Where are my brothers? Can't fight them. And the man asked him, saying, What are you looking for? And he said, I seek my brothers, tell me, I pray you, where they feed their flocks. 
The man said they are departed hence. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brethren, and that's where he found them. And when they saw him afar off, verse 18, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him to slay him. Well, this is taking a pretty serious turn. They hated him. They hated his dreams. They hated him even more after the dreams. And they were out there plotting and planning and decided, let's just kill him. That'll stop the dreams. They said one to another, Behold, this dreamer comes. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Dead men tell no tales. Or tell no tales. Or as, as it's the common one, dead doctors don't lie. But uh, they figured they'd take care of this once and for all. And Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. Now, Reuben had his character problems, but he also had a certain uh, compassion and concern. I said, well, let's don't kill him. Let's not take it that far. He said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. So whether they killed him outright or whether they dumped him in the pit and he died later of thirst and starvation, uh, maybe he was deceiving the brothers a little bit and saying, we're going to get rid of him, but let's not literally with our own hands kill him. Let's throw him in the pit. And he figured later he'd pull him out of the pit and take him back to that. So he was trying to show some mercy and compassion. But that was not the right solution. And it came to pass, when Joseph was come to his brethren, they stripped him out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. They took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it, so he would have died of thirst pretty quickly. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brethren, what profit is it if we stay our brother or slay our brother and conceal his blood? <laughs> it would be the Jew that came up with the money angle, I guess. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh, and his brethren were content. So Judah had been willing to kill him before this, but then he saw, hey, we can make a few bucks off him, so let's not kill him. And the brothers bought that. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew up and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Christ's price was 30, Joseph's price was 20. They brought Joseph into Egypt. Reuben returned to the pit. Behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. So Reuben was very concerned. And returned to his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, where shall I go? I'm the oldest son here. I should have been taking care of him, making sure he was taken care of. And now what's going to happen to me? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. They sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be your son's coat or no. Now they didn't outright lie uh, and say he must have been killed by an evil beast. They just asked, bad the question is this his coat and he knew it and said it is my son's coat and then he came to his own conclusion an evil beast has devoured him Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces 
And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. I wonder what that did to their consciences after what they had done. Disappointing their dad like that. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. So, a deep evil. And yet, we're going to find that God had a purpose in it, and God allowed it for his own reasons. We go through a lot sometimes. Uh, we're going to be hated of the world. We're hated of the church, even out here in this little group. They think we're nuts, but we'll see how this turns out. So we can do no wrong in obeying God and doing the things that we're instructed to do here by Jacob, as he instructed his family. His family didn't always do everything he said. They didn't always fulfill his wishes, did they? And look how they treated him over Joseph. But he meant well, Jacob did, and God will cause things to turn out right. So even when things look bad, God has a way of turning them around. So if we don't always think it's going God's way. We all, sometimes we look at things that might be happening around us or to us, and we think, well, is it God's will that this be happening or that it be happening this way? How could this be God's will? And we want everything to go hunky-dory all the time, don't we? We want things to be just as we would have them. But that isn't the way life plays out. God has an overall plan in mind. And he has us in that plan. Do you think for a moment he didn't have Jacob in that plan or Joseph in that plan? Yes, he did. So sometimes the conditions that we wish are simply not there. And we cannot see the hand of God, even though the hand of God is very much in it. We'll find Jacob kicked into the dungeon very shortly in the story. And I'll bet he sat there and thought, how in the world could this be God's plan for me, the son of Jacob, to be in this dungeon in Egypt? That must have weighed pretty heavily on his mind. Why would God let Pharaoh treat me this way? Why would God let me get out here and mine hard rocks, dig holes for a year and a half, or two or three, or however long this goes on, I and we might say. How could he have us doing this or that or the other thing? How can the hand of God be in this? Well, it can. We have a lot of stories back here of a lot of things that happen to people that you wouldn't have thought could possibly be the hand of God. So let's pick it up there and move on, God willing, and see the hand of God. Because... God sometimes does things that would truly surprise us. He works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He's going to perform wonders here at the end. But some of the ways he goes about it may seem mysterious at the moment to you and me.
And it may seem like hard work. Why didn't he just call us in when it was time for all this to happen? Why did we have to go through all this? God just doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. I'll bet about year 83, old Noah was saying, why didn't God just do this differently? Why do I have to work on this 120 years? Couldn't God have magically made a boat? Yeah, God could have. He made the earth for us to walk on. He made continents for us to float on. He could have made a boat for them to float on. It wasn't his way. It wasn't his way to immediately promote Joseph. It was his way to let him sit in prison for seven years. It was his way, whatever his reasons, to let his people Israel be slaves for 430 years. Now would that seem to be God's purpose and God's hand? That lasted so long they even forgot what God it was. But he had some lessons for people on down the line. God knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew even ahead of time before he sent them into Egypt how long they would be slaves there. Predicted it. Said it. So, don't always think just because things aren't going my way, your way, our way at the moment, and things seem difficult, that God's hand's not in it. We could go to the New Testament and see the same thing real easily. Paul could have said, do I see the hand of God in this shipwreck? These people are throwing rocks at me. I just, ooh, got hit in the head. I'm being stoned to death. Is this what God would want me to go through? Apparently so. He got stoned three times. Shipwrecked more than once. Got bit by a snake. Finally got crucified. Was this God's hand for me? Yeah, it was. So if right now even we see ourselves doing things that we think, what does this have to do with God? We have to do with God. God has called us out of this world. He has a purpose. He's working out for us. He has a specific job that he has commissioned us to do. And never ever has he made it easy for those he has commissioned to do his work throughout history. So if you're asked to do things that you think might be a little out of order, just be humble and stick your head back in the pot and clean it. That's what I had to do. And if I need to clean pots again, I'll do it. Because maybe that's what God needs me to go through. Maybe I forgot the lesson of humility back then, and maybe I need to clean some more or dig some holes or whatever it is he wants me to do. All I've got to say is, here am I. I'm your chosen vessel, your slave, that you've chosen out of this world to obey you, and Christ gave his life for me. Therefore, I owe you everything. Whatever you wish, here am I. That is the attitude of Joseph, the attitude of Ephraim, and it should be the attitude of Ephraimites and spiritual Jews today. So let's, let's understand things in context of the whole flow of history and how God has worked, and it might make it a little easier for us to deal with some of the things we find ourselves having to deal with here at the end, because God is God, and it will glorify him and not us when it's all said and done. 
he will himself raise up those who are willing to be abased and humbled. And he says that he will help a meek and humble people. So if we've got pride, if we've got vanity, if we've got ego, we have to be humbled and put on the righteous garments and be clean, and God can use us, just as he did these men. And they had to go through some cleansing and some work and some attitude adjustment before they were ready to be used of God. So God always has a purpose and a plan, even though it may not fit what we think we should have at the moment.